This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding and making connections. Understanding and making connections. We're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. Indigo Radio is a project of the Spark Teacher Education Institute based out of Southern Vermont. Indigo Radio, as a podcast, is now based with hosts in Seattle, Washington, Western Mass, Southern Vermont, Morocco, and myself here in Atlanta, Georgia. This is Anna Milani for Indigo. And today we air part one of an interview with Dr. Aliasa Ali Sul of Emory University. They are an associate professor of sociology at Emory and founder and director of the Race and Policing Project. I sat down with Dr. Sul a couple weeks ago at Emory to learn about their current work on housing policy and the firearm epidemic in Atlanta. We also learn about their thoughts on gentrification, housing, health and race in Atlanta, and Cop City. We'll be airing part two in a couple weeks. Thanks so much for listening. All right. So thank you for being here with Indigo Radio. Could I just have you introduce yourself and your current position at Emory? Okay. Uh, my name is Dr. Aliasa Ali Sewell. I am Associate Professor of Sociology at Emory University. I am also affiliated faculty in African American Studies. Um, and I would say associate faculty, I'm affiliated faculty in BSHE, the Department of Behavioral, Social, Health, Education, Sciences, and I am executive director of the Critical Racism Data Lab, uh, and before that, which is now folds that into the Critical Racism Data Lab, is the Race and Policing Project. When it comes to Emory, uh, the first thing I did that did involve where I started here, which I started uh, with the research on uh, childhood illness in Chicago and redlining. Mm -hmm. Um, And I looked at two forms of redlining. One was kind of the old school people, black folks uh, are denied loans uh, by these, mostly people considered the loan officers, right? So it's a one-to-one interaction And mostly the old school was black folks are more likely to be denied loans. If we really think about what redlining is, is that really black neighborhoods, okay, are denied loans. Uh, So I took that seriously and looked at that on one hand. And then I looked at what I consider contemporary redlining, which is more associated with the subprime mortgage market, which is something that really developed in the 1990s and went out of control to the point where we had a great recession in 2008. Mm-hmm. So we can we can link that and that's identifiable. Uh, what I look at empirically is what I call predatory lending. Um, and predatory lending is essentially you actually got the loan, all right? So you have access to the mortgage market. You got that access to wealth within home ownership. But the loan itself is not regulated by the federal government. And we can see that number one, uh, whether uh, how a, a loan is bought and it's sold to a private uh, organization, so uh, private financing uh, organization, or uh, you can also see it if it's um, not a VA loan, not a FHA loan. These would normally be considered private loans, and they literally call this. 
So you get in there both ways. Uh, in my case, subprime mortgages are bad, right? But they're also associated with something good, which is access to the mortgage market, which tends to happen when you're looking at private loans if you have the money to get in. So you bought down 20%, right? So you also see private loans in very affluent neighborhoods, white neighborhoods, uh, which is not a bad thing, right? So you're going to try to, I'm going to try to create a measure that differentiates wealth and, and private lending and some kind of wealth that's not so great in private lending. And that's where you look at the racial difference mm -hmm. in whether someone gets a private loan. So having a private loan itself is not a, a bad thing. In fact, is that if you have a concentration of FHA loans, if you have a concentration of VA loans, that's what is leading primarily look at to higher levels of lead poisoning. But then if you look at racial differences, right, racial differences in likelihood of getting access to private loans, we see that that is linked to a host of problems among children, um, including we have stomach aches, we have, um, we have, we just did one on a ch uh, ch child illnesses, frequency of illnesses. We have one that has not been published on, on asthma. Can you just quick say, just for listeners, simply put what redlining is? Yes. Historically, redlining has came, had came from uh, neighborhood watch people. I call them neighborhood watch people, but they're considered um, the homeowner loan corporation. Uh, their raiders came into neighborhoods across uh, the metropolitan area in 1937 to 1938. And they went through and they evaluated um, various aspects of the neighborhood including the racial composition of the neighborhood, the economic composition of the neighborhood, access to goods and services institutions, and as well as the land itself, the kinds of buildings, so on and so forth. And they gave them four ratings. It's A, B, C, D, right? You can consider this as a grade point average. So A was really good, it was green. B was somewhat good, it was blue. C was yellow. Kind of get into the point where we have to concern ourselves and red was D. And what the recommendation was from these homeowner loan corporation officers was that any D level, uh, D rated neighborhood did not get access to what would become FHA loans. Yellow and, and red neighborhoods, if you, it literally says, if you get a property in this neighborhood, sell it. <laughs> so these homes will be sold and sold and sold and sold without any mortgages. This is essentially some form which will show up for us today as um, uh, what we call it, business individuals who take a loan quickly and then sell it within a property for two years. I want to say- Is that the flipping process? It's the flipping process. Okay. That they get it and then they sell it. They sell it, more. and they're supposed to sell it within, ah, okay. really within two, two years. And, and to make the money within okay. less than two years. So with flippers, um, you only get paid when you sell the home. And that means the only other reason you would sell the home is if you can fix the home for as little as possible, which means flippers will come in and do exactly what you need in order for someone to live there, sell someone the home with the, uh, the assumption that you're gonna get higher value for it and then keep moving on. What's left is on one hand, um, the funders for these loans, these are mostly hard money loans, they take at the lowest 6%. 
sometimes up to 14% over a year or so of the loan that is, um, that is originated. Um, that's a lot of money, right? And so during that time, the flipper has to both carry the mortgage on the loan, they have to put out the amount of money to fix the place, and they have to find a buyer, right? So that's another process that a buyers. You have realtors that are involved with this process, but mostly these are private loans, and they're not even really private loans, they're considered hard money loans. So someone is bringing in 60, 65% of the capital, and then the other, the rest of it is given to uh, the contractor, and they, they sell that together to for a profit, maybe at 400. So you buy the, the house for 50,000, the land really for 50,000, you put about $100,000 worth of work in it, and then you sell the house at 400,000. That's a good that's a good house, right? Yeah. So this is this is a good deal. This is what happened in the the 90s and the two early 2000s. Folks would come into black neighborhoods and poor ghetto slum neighborhoods, buy homes for like 10, 15, 20,000 dollars, do very minimal work on it and then sell it back uh, to someone else. And it was so it was so it happened so quickly that it was even difficult to track the changes in titles. And when, when you say they're selling back, are they selling back to people within that community, or is this when the mm -hmm. gentrification process is they're, happening? And the first part of it, they're selling it back to other investors. Oh, okay. Other investors that can uh, sell it for more. So okay. there's a, in some sense, wow, we have good. a, right, we have a piece of land that's very low value. There's maybe a structure on it. Someone does some work on it and increases the value of it. Someone buys it. Mm -hmm. You probably need about a $50,000 spread for it to make sense for that person to do a little bit of work and then sell it again. Mm -hmm. Now, you do this enough times, you start to see gentrification. Okay, because it. eventually the homes get to the point where they're basically livable. And all you need to do is perhaps fix it up a little bit. And you don't really have a lot of money to put 20% down on a $400,000 house. So that's $80,000. You can take about $20,000 in a neighborhood like this, get a 10% down or even less down because people don't really, lenders don't want to lend in that neighborhood at all and buy a whole home that is livable. Yeah. You do that enough times, you have, who has, number one, who has access to 20, 30, maybe $40,000 of cash? That's white middle class coming right out of college, probably first or second job. They may have some money that from their parents, they may have some money that they save up from working, so on and so forth. And they're willing to take the chance in those neighborhoods that, you know, if they stay there long enough, the equity will go up in the house as well as the safety will go up in the house, uh, the safety around the house. One of the, one of the ways in which that happens is through policing. So you have a, a place where young white folks are coming in, they want to feel safe. They call, anytime they see something, they call the police. Someone is walking down the street, I've seen them walking down the street 10 times within two days, I think they're casing the house, call the police. Well, the other day, someone was knocking on my door, they left a package, but they picked it up, we got on our cambage, call the police. It's the middle of the night, we hear noise, we see someone running, call the police. So if you call the police enough times, someone is going to get caught in that system that may or may not be either literally in the system or tangential to it. You do that enough times, those homes where those individuals were, they're empty. And because they didn't own the home in the first place, mm -hmm. they're probably renting for very little. Now the house is available for a flipper to come in and do the same thing that was happening to the young white professional who bought the home that was already flipped. Yeah. 
And then where are the people going that are being pushed out? So you have the, the worst cases, the worst of them are in jail. The rest of them are moving into other ghetto slums further out of the city. Mm -hmm. So in my neighborhood, so I bought a home in historic West End in 2015. I bought it for $155,000. I overpaid for it. <laughs> the house seemed livable, it was not livable. We will have that story later. In the neighborhood around me, everybody was renters, okay? As a gentrification occurred, if you go to that neighborhood today, so it's 2023 right now, my neighbor is white, the neighbor across the street is white, two doors down is white, diagonal to the east is white. If you look at the entire block, maybe there are two black families there. My neighbor was a person that was on disability and the person bought the house. Someone, someone her uh, landlord got sick, wanted to sell the house. They sold it to an investor. They let her stay in the house rent free for a year because they couldn't figure out where to sell it. After the year, what happens, they're like, hey, you gotta move within like 30 days. So she has to find another place to stay. She's still on disability. Where are you going? Mm -hmm. And you perhaps could afford maybe five, $700. Okay, you're going into South Atlanta. Right. You're going into Clifton. You know, you're going into Clayton. You're going into places that are, that are not gentrifying. In most cases, and, and here, you're moving to the places that are kind of close to Cop City. And no one wants to go over there. Mm. Right? Those areas are actually where penitentiaries are. They're areas that, that a lot of the legal forces are as far as where they put their buildings, right? The area south of Grant Park. From between Grant Park and Constitution, there are a lot of buildings that are basically F FBI, Georgia Bureau of Investigation, those kinds of things. I'm not going to get it all right, okay? So one of the things that happens is that you're getting displaced residents who really never could afford to live in those areas, but we're getting deals from other flippers to basically pay their interest, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, for while they're trying to flip the home, basically playing the interest on the home. My story on that home is that I moved out of the home. I bought the home in September uh, 2015. I moved out of that home December 14, 2021. Mm. And what we found is that the house was riddled with mold. There was mold um, inside the doors. There were mold inside the walls. The main source of mold that was triggering my asthma and allergen problem was a complete rotting out of the decking of the roof for the original house. So I, I was told the roof was, was being replaced. Mm -hmm. There's no way that roof had been replaced. Now what had happened was they had put shingles, they had taken up some of the old shingles and put more shingles down and that was considered replacing the roof. When we went to uh, try to understand what was going on, we, I won't shame them, but I could. Because <laughs> they, came, they came in 2015 to fix the roof from a ceiling and they came back in 2022 to say, oh, we'll put another layer of sheetrock on it. When they went to do that, there were four or five layers of sheetrock that they were pulling up. There was decking that you could see that was completely rotted from the outside. And two months later, I'm still passing out. We, we leveled the subfloor, the main level subfloor. We took out the attic subfloor. And when you did it, mm -hmm. all you saw was mold. Mm -hmm. And I asked wow. the guy, I was like, did y'all see that? He never even went in the house. So he never saw the inside of the decking uh -huh. and how that house was built. The house was originally 900 square feet. It's cur currently 1,750 square feet. 
So what people have been doing, these flippers, in order to get more value out of it, they just been building onto the home, building onto the home, building onto the home. And around in the mid-90s, the uh, uh, preservation is designated the area as historic, meaning you cannot change the front of the house. There had been so many changes to that house that you actually couldn't figure out what the blueprint of the house was. Yeah. Not from the outside. So what they did in this place, they retroactively graded what the house at that time looked like. It looked like basically a matchbox and a matchbox and a matchbox. And when we're going in there to find out what's going in uh, the attic, there were two roofs. There was a roof that was original that had a pitch that was right. There was a roof over it that was built with a different pitch to cover up a number one, a extension of the external wall for a den with concrete and cement. It was nice, it was very nice. And then also the extension of the deck to enclose it for itself to be a, a kitchen. That you pitch out of this house? In 2021, I couldn't, I was having vertigo. I was uh -huh. suffering, I was almost um, suffocating the year before that. And really, so let's take December, 2021 and go back a whole year, maybe two months. I'd been in the hospital six times That's with awesome. unknown causes. Okay. And the one time I remember that was the most harrowing was February the 1st. I had gotten off of a, a panel with the University of Minnesota webinar. And I got off before then I had a, a meeting with my consultants. I fell out after the meeting. I had to wiggle my way out to the, to the deck and when I get out of it, I'm like, oh, I can finally breathe. I come in to do my webinar. I get through it, pass out again. Cool. So at this point in time, I'm like, mm, I don't know. I feel uncomfortable. So I left and went to work. And I came back that night. And I was putting my clothes away. And I passed out in my closet, into my clothes. And when I woke up, I was literally inside the clothes, probably about to suffocate. And I couldn't move. So, you know, it probably between that time, which were probably about eight o'clock until three o'clock in the morning, my attempt was to get my body out of my walk-in closet to my 911 call that I was finally able to make at three o'clock in the morning. And during that time period, I was able, I realized that I really was not doing well. And I woke up after um, fought, passing out in the, closet, was able to move around, wiggle around, pass out again in, in the middle of the room. And when I woke up, it was lightning fire through my head. And I was like, see, you don't really have any choices right now. You need to get an ice pack on your head because I don't know what's going on, but you should never have that much heat coming out of your neck and your, and your, and your forehead. So I wiggled my way to, to the kitchen. I pulled together an ice pack. It's easier for me to breathe in the kitchen than in my room. I'm going back to my room to go to sleep in my bed and I pass out again. This time I'm out for about an hour and a half. I'm, I'm now starting to clock myself because I'm like, how much time am I losing? But in that day, I lost about, between the closet and 311, the 911 call, I lost about seven hours. And finally, I'm like, okay, I need to go to sleep. Something's wrong. I woke up crawled myself back to the bed. I wake up about two o'clock in the morning and I fall out of my bed. Okay, so I can't move. I try to make some phone calls to colleagues and friends. It's three o'clock in the morning, everyone's sleeping. And I just, I was like, I have to call 911. 
by the time they came, I was essentially, I was convulsing. Uh, but I have a lot of medication. My dog is there. They pick me up. They take me out through the back of the house because you can't, it's an older house, so you move it all between the um, the hallways. You can't do that. You got to go out through the exit. And they took me to Emory uh, Midtown, which for me was Crawford Long. I still remember these these names. Um, Georgia Baptist, Crawford Long, you know, those are my places. And they released me in the middle of the night. And um, at that point in time, I had a the shirt that I was in, and that was it. I didn't have socks. I didn't have pants. I was like, so I'm going to need some clothes. <laughs> so they gave me a hospital pajamas, and they gave me hospital socks. And what I realized, I didn't have a cell phone, I didn't have a wallet, and nobody knew where I was. And I was waiting, I'm waiting, I told them to give some numbers to call, it's 3 o'clock, it's 6 o'clock, it's 7 o'clock, and I'm like, nobody knows where I am, I gotta get home. So I left, I did, you can call it wild and strange and dumb. I picked myself up and I walked home, it took me four hours. And by the time I got home, my feet were completely cut up and full of rocks and cement, and there was no there was no bottom to <laughs> to the sock. And I went to my doctor because see, here's the thing: I've been in the emergency room. So one of the things they tell you about emergency rooms: if you go too many times, you get push push up the list for your primary care doctor of like you need help. So I got pushed up the list. She's like, come in that today, and I spent about an hour in the office, them picking all kinds of gravel out of my foot. And I couldn't walk without a boot for like two weeks. That for me is the historic West End. That for me is what I came back to. I'm from Atlanta. Mm -hmm. This is what I came back to when I got a job at Emory. Yeah. That was the house I could afford and that's what it did to me. Yeah. At this point in time, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's a loss. I mean, one way or the other, it's a loss. At that time, I probably had a mortgage of around uh, $1,700. When I originally qualified for the house, I had a mortgage of $700. That's what I could afford. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I got one of those low-income loans. I was coming out of graduate school. It was a 5% loan from the city of Atlanta, Invest Atlanta. They gave me $200 back. I'm thinking, this is awesome. I got a house I can afford. I'm sleeping at nighttime in my own space, and six years later, I have a mortgage of 175, I think, thousand dollars, and I'm making $1,700 payments, and I'm falling out of my house. This is around the time of COVID. I remortgaged the property from 155 to 170, or 175, and then I had to remortgage it again. I'm fighting debt that I'm picking up from fighting the house, whether it's the HVAC or it's electricity or the plumbing or the floors of this or da da da. I've been funding all this by myself with credit and the equity from the home, frankly, because the, the equity was going up. So when I left the home, I had a mortgage of 280. Um, this was one year past COVID. So we're talking about December 2021. I had been on mortgage assistance for the, from the, um, the CARES Act for almost two years at that time. So I actually had not paid a mortgage for almost two years. And I called my bank up and I said, listen, I can't even stay in the house right now. There is, we just had a, basically, they call it ground floor flooding, grounds water flooding. It is not covered by insurance. So the insurance come in there, we're looking for a leak. They can't find a leak. The leak they find is 
from the ground. It's not coverable. Whatever mold that had existed there, not coverable. You still have to be insured and the house has to be livable. So what? You have to pay for it yourself. So that's what I did. <laughs> I decided to go for broke. Mm -hmm. In 2021, when I, it was December 31st, I got the report back from uh, Hippo. And I had had a problem getting insurance for that house anyway um, because it had so many water damages. Um, and there were claims on water damages before me, while me, so on and so forth. We actually had mold in the house. When I bought the house, I did not know what it was. So I was like, oh, they said, oh, we sprayed it down, it's gone. And then six months later, someone is, I'm having my house rented out while I'm still on a postdoc in, in the University of Pennsylvania. They're having vertical, they're falling out. They come back and they, I have a, no mold Atlanta came in. There was mold all through the crawl space, all through the kitchen. Cost me $25,000. Wow. Number one, no one's paying that, it's a mold job. You're paying that, you have to pay that out of pocket. After that, my mortgage company, I mean my insurance company dropped, dropped me. <laughs> They were like, figure it out. And so for since 2016, really, I've been working with an insurance broker. And every year we find a different insurer and they will only cover the house itself. We don't get any good coverage. Um, they call it, I think HO3 in, in coverage is the bare minimum that you absolutely need. So when you have something like a flood damage or whatever, you're not covered. And that's what happened in my case. Yeah. Um, what I'll say, and, and this, you know, this is what it is. This is 2023, I have not moved back in the house. We do not have electricity, plumbing. Uh, we do not have floors. We did get paint finally. Mm -hmm. And we have solved, I have solved every structural problem with that house. We irrigated the house. We leveled the house. We, re we built back three of the four foundation walls that had collapsed. We took everything out of that house. There was nothing but beams. But we took out all beams and replaced them. We took, we went and took the structural beams out and we replaced them. The only thing that's still living there is the metal pole that is, that is the middle of the house. Mm -hmm. um, the HVAC system, we came back in February last year uh, and, the, and really, I guess, earlier this year and uh, um, the crawl space was flooded. There was a pipe burst. So there was HVAC system in there that probably was the only thing that we, we didn't have to replace and a water, water heater and I, we had to replace that. Anyone who's listening to me who has ever built a house, they know how much money that is. Yeah, that seems like a lot. So you still own this house? I still own the house. I have not been able to sell the house right. because it is not inhabitable. Yeah. I have not been able to refinance the house because it's not inhabitable. Yeah. And to refi, you need to do an in internal inspection. That's not gonna happen, right? Where have you moved to? I'm living in a studio in, in the old fourth ward and my lease is up at the end of March and I am going to go home. I have to. We have to finish the house and What about your health? You know, I like, you know how what do you navigate that because it sounds like the house the house impacted is, your health. So the much. house did impact my health. I do believe in God, I believe in the universe. We have done a lot of things to ensure that there is no moisture in the house that's above uh, probably 40%. We keep the moisture very low. Um, we mold-proofed even the crawl space. So I, I hired AquaGuard, and that's the one thing they guaranteed. We're going to come in. We're going to um, encapsulate the crawl space, irrigate everything. There's a dehumidifier down there. Mold-proof all of the um, concrete and the footers. And so, so their claim 
is that there will not be any more mold in the crawl space. For the main level, my contractor, when it was bare bones, we went and painted every piece of board with mold resistant paint. And then rebuilt all the walls and so on and so forth. When I, before that, I used to walk into the house and I'd pass out. I might've been able to stay in the house for about mm -hmm. 20 minutes. Now I can walk through the house. There's dust in there, right? So that's what's probably triggering some stuff. But the reaction that I had to mold isn't there. So I'm fairly confident that there isn't mold in the house. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And that being said, why would you take a chance? So no. that's the decision I have to make on March 24th. I have to make a decision of whether I'm going to take a chance. I love my house. I love my house. I feel like I just built my house. My dad built our house out of wood. It's hard to let go. At this point in time, it is a catastrophic loss. Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah. And I'm also, sorry. if you were build, if you were buying a house in that neighborhood right now, you'd pay seven fifty to a million dollars. Yeah, that's wild. And I probably spent more than that over the last eight years. Wow. And I'll never get any of that money back. I would never be able to sell that house for a million dollars. I mean, maybe in 20 years when the belt line, it's a, oh, so the, the one unique thing about the house is it's, it's literally on the belt line. Mm -hmm. So you have a property that's a corner property where one side of the uh, corner, one side of the, the property line is the belt line. Mm -hmm. You're never going to get better than that. Mm -hmm. I have security uh, cameras all the way around. Most people wouldn't sell a, a property like that unless you absolutely had to. And somewhere in my mind, I think, I don't have to sell. Mm -hmm. I can do it. Mm -hmm. It's not a gamble. It's, it's an act of faith mm -hmm. to believe that. I haven't made my final decision, but I would love to move back in my house. Yeah. Is it a smart idea? Probably not. <laughs> we'll see. We'll, we'll see. see. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. The way that I found you was because... There was a panel here around um, Cop City and health and the Leelani Forest. And when we were talking before, you said that your, um, your history with the Leelani Forest started in 1983. So can you tell me about the Leelani Forest yeah. from your perspective? From my perspective? Yeah. Okay. It, it probably started at three years old, which would have been 1986, but not really, because my dad started to build a house out in Ellenwood Georgia on River Road about the time when I was born because he was like you know what it's time to settle down uh, my mom worked for uh, was a nurse assistant at St. Joseph's and I was a breech baby so she was able to contact a, a doctor in Northside Hospital and so I was born in Northside Hospital which as a kid in 1983 a black kid was extremely rare mm -hmm. but we lived in Sylvan Hills so Sylvan Hills I lived off Estes Drive it's literally right below uh, the Lakewood Parkway. Essentially, the I would say my ceiling is the Parkway. So in some sense, we already were not in a great place. Sylvan Hills is in uh, Southwest Atlanta. It's in an area where there is more violence and there's more, more inequities, more poverty, so on and so forth. So for us, my dad, it was a win moving out to DeKalb County. And he was able to buy a plot of land, a quarter acre, for 400 bucks. And he was able to buy a mobile home kit for $4,000. And 
and he built the house himself with his friends because see this is what he does he his father was a builder so on and so forth he's from jamaica for him for us this was building a house with a picket fence like this was it right we made it because he had to build it himself he wasn't able to really finish it all at once but it came to a point where the house that we were living in which he did own in silver hills got an offer on it that was too good to be true so he had been working in the bluff flipping homes he was a flipper my dad's a flipper he's also a landlord in those areas so you can imagine uh kind of what it takes to keep those places together but he decided to sell all his property in the bluff sell the property in silver hills move out to decatur i know all of us are very proud of that right the, there, there are two pieces of this is why my life started in 1983 in the Willani Forest. Number one, when my parents moved me in, they moved in on some floors because the house was not finished. River Road is a, a road that parallels South River. There is a, um, on one end of it, there is a water treatment sewer system, but it's for DeKalb County. It is the main one that cleans all the water from DeKalb County. There is also the DeKalb County landfill, it's called Seminole Landfill. That Seminole Landfill is not more than a one mile from my backyard. So as a kid, I could amble through the forest and go to the edges of the landfill and play with the trash. And I did, because I was a kid that liked the forest. When I was growing up, there were very few neighborhoods, subdivisions on that neighborhood. And, when my dad was born, or when I was, my dad was building a house, there really were no subdivisions. So it was the house. Our neighbor bought their plot of land the same way out there. They built a subdivision, subdivision around us called River Run. And then there was just woods. And it was woods everywhere. There was a house way down the street that was super big and it was a mansion between them and pure woods. That's South River Forest Woods. Um, there is a road that stretches from River Road to Flakes Mill Road. Flakes Mill Road, if you keep on going all the way up, uh, it turns into, it goes over I-20. It's going to get into you all the way up into Covington Highway. So it's, if you go all the way down, it goes through Henry County and it will end on Panola Road, right? So this is essentially a connection between Henry County and really what starts to be very much so the Metro Atlanta or I-20 area. Um, there is a road off there called Wilani Road. Mm -hmm. And I've always known about Wilani Road. Everybody knows about Wilani Road because it's a shortcut. <laughs> it will take you, it's, it's one mile, it's like 0.9 miles, and it will allow you to cross out this, ugh, they put a light there. Ugh. So, you know, now we don't have to go through light, we just cross through Wilani, Wilani Road. And it's me and everybody. It's nothing but hills. It's windy. It's not long, but you can cut off three minutes. <laughs> Okay, so Wilani Road is now um, backs up to a subdivision called Camelot, where my parents were able to buy another house. Um, so we actually did lose our home in the, in the subprime uh, crisis. In 2003, my dad sold that home, uh, and he owed 130 on it. He, he bought it for $4,400. He, he owed $130,000 on it. I didn't know the name of the forest. It was just where I played. Yeah. And over the 90s, and, and it did start in the, it started in the late 80s, but over the 90s, it was just a mushroom of subdivisions. 
And if you go down River Road now, it's, a, it's everything is a subdivision. There is no forest anymore. There is a piece of forest that you can get after you pass over uh, Flakes Mill until Wilani Road. There were houses that were built in that area that backyards just fell. They just collapsed into the river because you're between a river mm -hmm. and you're between a landfill. Mm -hmm. So you have pure waste products just slushing into the river, right? That's technically what's happening. Yeah. So that, that those properties, the land underneath them are unstable. Now, this is from a geological level, right? No one knows that from a me and you level. It's just a windy road with cars. Mm -hmm. On the other side of, Re of Relani Road is what really is the black upper middle class. So on Relani Road going towards what is Cop City, it's a mixture. The, the closer you get to uh, Cop City, it's working class. Around where I am, it's working to middle and it keeps going. It gets, gets more affluent as you go into the forest. Mm -hmm. uh, but once you pass Relani Road, it's almost all forest and it has not been very well developed and that's a good thing by the way um there is a neighborhood for for a long long time there was a neighborhood to the right that they built up homes at six hundred thousand dollar homes seven hundred thousand dollars it was so expensive and beautiful homes and, and through here still in the cab county there is a, a estate called thurgood estate home selling for seven hundred million dollars everything foreclosed in 1990s and 2000 Almost everything in that area foreclosed. This is DeKalb County, Henry County, and Clayton County. In that portion of DeKalb County, it's all black. It's 99.5% black. No, they don't report who they are, right? If you go over county line into Henry County, it's almost all white. And it's, this is clear. You will see some, there are some black, there are black families who have moved in, but even now it's a rarity, right? Um, so you can look at the census tracts in Henry County versus the census tract in DeKalb County, and the, the racial divide is clear. The class divide is clear, okay? In the county line, uh, and you can, um, if you're passing over into Panola, that river road, going into Panola Road, there's some, some segways you can get through. Um, there is the electrical field. There's electrical field that goes right through the county line between DeKalb County and Henry County. And eventually it will get you to Clayton County at the airport. Mm -hmm. If you keep going up, it's going to take you through to DeKalb County, county line from Fulton, Fulton County. So this is an environmental, it, there is nothing else to say that this is an environmental hazard. You have land waste, you have water waste, you have electrical air waste. And yes, if you are driving through that neighborhood in certain parts of the, certain parts of the day, certain months, um, certain seasons more so than other, you can just smell trash. Mm -hmm. Now there are a number of neighbor, there are a number of parts of the area south of 285 that's like that. This one is particularly fragrant, right? I would love to tell you it's more in the summertime or it's on hot days. Mm -hmm. No, it can come like, you'd be like, oh my God, today is trash day. <laughs> and it's not really trashy, it's dump day. Really, because mm -hmm. every dump, everyone's dumping down oh, there. Is that huge landfill? Is that right? That's a landfill. The Seminole landfill, and it's huge. It's huge, and you can see it from the That's satellite. In the forest. Yes. Okay. Yes. Got it. Yes. Uh, the landfill is in the forest. The uh, the wastewater sewage treatment center is in the forest. The electrical line goes through the forest on both sides. There's still it's still the forest. Um, but see, yeah. see, I want to just kind of get these names right. So Wilani Forest is, is a very big area. 
It's very big. This area that we're referring to is probably a subsection within it called South River Forest. Yeah. South okay. River Forest at its tip within the, within the perimeter, which would be Boulder Crest Road, right? There's a pilot there on a train station, uh, on a, a gas station. There you see the end of Boulder Crest Road going into Constitution. That's Cop City. Okay. That's what I was wondering, yeah. The so, location so, of that. so the location, so it's the decab corner part of Cop City. So Cop City is a triangle. And it's a triangle that the left side of it, I will say the western side of it, is like kind of 90 degree up and down. So the bottom part is 90 degree up and down. And then there's a curve over around which is Boulder Crest. There's Key Road, there's Constitution Road, there's Boulder Crest. In here you get your Cop City. And through the middle of Cop City, you have the borderline between Fulton County okay. and DeKalb County. Okay. And through those areas, you have those electrical fields. Okay. So the electrical fields of Atlanta have ran themselves through uh, Weelani Forest, like, but it is technically Weelani Forest. Yeah. But the mo but the the concentration of the environmental hazards are within the South River Forest aspect okay. of Weelani Forest. And tell us about Cop City. So you know, I will I will admit that my understandings of Cop City are very recent and somewhat limited in the sense I'm like, where is this place? You know, and the whole time I'm passing right by it. <laughs> I'm like, oh, and so I had to go and look at a map to really understand it. And I thought, oh man, I've driven by there many times. There's a, a cut between Moreland Avenue and Boulder Press. It's Constitution Road. That the north part of that is where Cop City is projected to be. And then if you're going from the pilot down Bodacris Road and you're going to Moreland Road, you're also getting right that that now this will be the south, this will be the northeastern part, that corner of the triangle. So that area has always been there. It's not any different. You can't see it though. If you go through Constitution, it's kind of like a dead spot. There's a lot, there actually is a prison system down there and it's active. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some other legal stuff down there, but almost all in Aries industry. That they've been building subdivisions into that neighborhood within the last, I want to say 15 years. So when I came to Atlanta, back to Atlanta, I left in 2001, I came back in 2015. They were selling homes in that area where you could, I remember one of them, you could actually see the electrical fields for about 300000 They're now valued at about 500000 Wow. Yeah, exactly. On the, on electrical field. Yeah, that's not shocks me. Near, not near a constitution by, by prisons. Yeah. You could just you walk. Why would you pay that much for? Why would you pay? Well, you, most of these folks bought in at $300,000, uh -huh. $250,000 to three hundred. I couldn't qualify for homes out here. They're beautiful, though. Let's be clear about it. The craftsman homes are huge. Da, 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 da. The land is cheap. Uh, no one wants to be there. Because of the electrical. Be because, because of the, the because environmental of the, stuff? Because of the, the electrical, location. definitely. But also because of the penitentiary. Right, it's right there. And people will leave the jails and the penitentiary and they don't have a way to go oh, and they'll right. walk north. That. That's that huge penitentiary. Yes, yeah, it's huge. Like yeah, there's a, a guitar shop down there that you can do. It is a beautiful place. There are a lot of apartment complexes running through the south side of Cop City. But I'm gonna give you I'm gonna give you something that we can get concrete on. So Cop City is in the zip code 30316. 
So I'm doing a study um, with uh, Randy Nicole Smith in Grady Public Hospital. Uh, she uh, was the director of the acute trauma center. And uh, you have to be there, you have to have brought, been brought to the hospital with a trauma um, episode and uh, have survived for 23 hours and 59 minutes. The minute that you get to that 59 minutes, you are now admitted to the acute trauma center. But it tells you something about the hospitals, the healthcare center. The hospital system is designed to save lives, but it has to triage which life it can save. So if you don't make it to 24 hours, you're dead and you're basically, you're not here anymore, or you've been released, right? So the trauma was either not serious or you're dead. Among those in the um, medical registry that do make it to the acute trauma center between 2016 and 2021, there are 24,000 people, a good about 40% of them did die, okay? Depending on how you identify firearms, you have firearms, you have guns, you have rifles, you have pistols in there. You get about another about 40% that actually are just firearms. From there, we connect that data. We have the zip code of the individual, where they were living at that time, and the zip code of where they were injured at that time. Mm -hmm. Now, the short story on the study is that you can link the firearm injuries and the firearm uh, residences. So where residence was, where a person was living when they were a victim of firearm violence, where they were actually injured, to redlining in 1937. So in areas that had been derated, and they're very clear there's maps of them, you can look at them yourself. Those areas today have higher levels, mostly over 100 firearms in that five-year period. The C-rated ones is here and there, right? Sometimes they'll have the reds uh, as far as over 100. Sometimes they'll have that middle between 20 and 100, and then sometimes it'll be, it actually will be blue. As far, I call it blue firearms. I created a, a scale, a category, that show you the rating, the, the grading of the firearms and its associated, association with the grading of the neighborhoods in 1937. The problem is that most of the neighborhoods in the metro Atlanta did not exist then. And even many of the neighborhoods in Fulton and DeKalb County didn't exist in. So what you're, cap what you're capturing with this data, with the Cop City zip code 30316, there were over 100. That area is very close to a yellow rated area. It's actually not D-rated, but it has red firearms, red rated firearms. There is actually not a, there is not a strong correlation between where um, African Americans live and where the firearms are happening. It's interesting, mm. but in the areas where they are concentrated with more than 90% black, they're not the areas that you're having the highest levels of, of firearm violence. They may be mid-tier, mm -hmm. so you get your 20 to 50 or so on and so forth. But you know, at black, the black middle, the black America, Atlanta has spread out so far. We have black land on the north side, the deep south side. We have the west side. We have that 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 eastern corridor, but on underneath twenty over um, over twenty five, um, and they're not all poor, right? A lot of them own homes, mm -hmm. right? So there's so in 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 the three hundred three one six, there still is a lot of people who own homes. In three hundred two nine four, almost everybody owns homes. I do believe it is accurate to say that in this red zoned area, 
it's almost all around it. So in the zip code itself, it's it's yellow. Mm-hmm. But in the zip code to the to the west, in the zip code to the east, it it is, it is red. And that's it's just it's difficult data to work with. We're looking at getting address data, but the addresses for the acute trauma center are missing for about 50% of the cases. So really not 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 very good at understanding the precision of the differences, but what I'm hoping for is that there will be a better understanding of the the imprecision inside the zip code. If we have enough data inside the zip code, we're able to be able to track the the census tract variation. Can you, so what is the intention of that research? Like, what are you trying to show or do with that? So we, so what we call about it is the, we, what we named is the firearm epidemic. Mm -hmm. And what we want to understand is how much of that epidemic is really legacy effect. It's a, it's a rollover from things that had been deprived, disinvested, they had been bought and sold over and over again, right? There were already a a lot of black folks in there. There were already um, slums there. Um, There are people there were already working class. They were already unemployed. How much then did they stick across time? Let's be clear about that. This is uh, 80 years. And one of the things that it led to defies over other cities is it never stayed the same. It just expanded. So when you look at the maps, if you were able to color code the firearm into the categories, A, B, C, D categories, you can see it looks like a contagion effect. North of, north of that, that downtown area, mostly back in the day, was rated green and blue. It's A and B. And if you look at the spread today of the firearm violence, it's within that green and blue category. So the green would be less than 10, and the blue would be between 10 and 20. Don't quote me, but that's what I saw last. Mm -hmm. I think it's deceptive about zip code areas. So when Cop City is going to be built, it suggests there's a lot of indicators that would be the case. Mm-hmm. It's using data from a very large zip code to basically police a ton of people. The, the closer you get to the cop city, is actually more affluent. The poorer areas are closer to I-20. Yeah, that's interesting, huh? Yes, so McNair High School is in that area. Um, there is the uh, Barack Obama Tech. Those are good places to be. Gresham Park is actually a really nice place to go. Folks are very civically engaged. So you're taking a, an area, the homes over there, in, I'm saying, the homes that are close to Cop City, they're valued over 300000 up to 400000 500000 You're right, if you keep going up, it gets a little poor. If you go up and to the east, you're going to get your Candler Park, Candler Road area. That is, that is poor. You do have drugs there. But it's also true that this area where Cop City is, the further, if you just say just north of it, it's Grant Park, mm-hmm. which I promise you there's no crime over there. Mm-hmm. What I might suggest with Cop City is that it's being built to protect the wealth. And what will happen over time is that those areas, I want you to follow me with the logic. The housing in that area will get more expensive. Because now people who are affluent feel safer in those areas that were already gentrifying. I did the, the map with the census tracts. 
right? I couldn't believe this. But when you look at census tract per per African American, that area has less than 10% black. So this is Cop City right here. I'll give you the map that actually has the Cop City. Okay. This is the 20 to 100, 21 to 100. This is like 10% black. Hmm. You get the black going further and further close, it's still not black, all right? So these lighter colors here are 10 to 33%, so up to a third black, maybe 33%. This is the median. The median in the land is 33%. But these individuals, mm -hmm. these neighborhoods are below median black. <laughs> mm -hmm. I promise you, they're going to become whiter and whiter. The black, the black areas, these are very concentrated black areas. These are 90% more, 99% more. So you see it. The darker purple The area. darker purple area, you see very high concentrated black areas and right next to them, gentrification. This, look at this. Yeah, it's really interesting to me. I, I, because I, this lighter is more white communities, is that right? This is less than third black. Okay. This is gentrifying America, Atlanta. Yeah. And Atlanta is like that. It has extremely black neighborhoods, over 90%, and in neighborhoods where there's none of them. Yeah. Right? In the, in the middle of the city, you will see African Americans. I want you to catch this. They've already been policing the area. Mm -hmm. They've already been driving out black folks. They've already been driving out poor people. Mm -hmm. So they, now, if you go to Grant Park today, there are very few black people there. Mm -hmm. And Grant Park, Right underneath it is the Atlanta Beltline. Yeah. Do you think there will be lots of this black is people? white now, yeah? Yes. Yeah. And what's happened, so the Beltline on the east side is over here. Ain't yeah. any black people there. So this is the metropolitan zone. Yeah, this is, look at, the, this is something that, I mean, as someone who's new to Atlanta, I've been trying to. You never understand, right? You know, I've been trying to work it out because you always hear moving, oh, Atlanta's one of the blackest cities. And, yeah. I, and then I've seen different headlines of like yeah, black. gentrification and where it's changing. The, right. The, the black so is like only pushed here. and pushed. Yeah. It's, it's like it squeezed itself out. Yeah. It, over and over again, more and more and more so, young white educated folks with a little bit of money, not a lot, just a little bit, maybe 10,000, 10, maybe 40,000, willing to go into a place that's a little scary where everything's kind of you know, either it's just industry or whatever, they're going right into the middle and they're just going right down. And it's if you follow this DeKalb County Fulton level, it's all mostly white folks there. And, and, and Atlanta is not a black and white city, let's be clear about that. But south of south of I-20, it definitely is. Mm, okay. There are very few Latinx Asian communities there. If you go way out here, uh, going into uh, College Park, you'll see some concentrated Latinx communities. But most Latinx communities and Asian communities are going to be up right here, area. right? Okay. So it's a little, it's a little deceptive to just say black, not black. It's a little, but not down here. Yep, that's a, that I got. That here is just, are you all the black people, or are you none of the black people? Mm -hmm. Do you exist in a place in a census tract? This is census tract data, where you only see black folks, but then you cross over a line, or you go over a, 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 a shopping district, and it's all white. For me, this is theater. You have to perform this. You have to talk about it like you're a regular person. Otherwise, oh, totally. it gets lost on you, yeah. right? So this here's, is really, as a, this no, is the, I feel this like is, I'm getting a one-on-one -on -one class right now. <laughs> Besides the <laughs> <an> interview. <laughs> it's actually really true. fascinating to me about the cop city situation too, because the way that 
Well, I don't know. These like these like real details are really interesting or important because the way that I've been hearing about it in a lot of the activist, mm. which I'm yeah. sure there's reasons for this of like, it's is around gentrification and black and brown communities being policed. But it's so interesting to see that map about how it's actually the closer you get is it's white. more white and affluent. It's more white and affluent. I'm not going to lie. This one was a shocker. At that time when I started looking, I couldn't quite grasp where the pilot was. Now, once I found out, oh, the pilot's right there, I was like, oh, that makes sense. Okay. Because this is what, what happened is uh, when you go south of Flat Shoals Road, Gresham Park, this is on I-20. Um, so you're looking from anywhere from Moreland Avenue all the way over to Gresham Park. Uh, the whites who were not able to get into Edgewood and Kirkwood, they went in and bought up houses that they, they were poor. They were small brick houses. They had lots of land though. And they just kind of went in and fixed them up a little bit and, and, and settled there. They didn't leave though. Un unlike what really has happened in the old fourth world where people have come in, it's like apartments. Down there, they built very few apartments because the, the houses are so nice. The, the land is so nice. Mm. And most of the land is residential. The only uh, commercial industry land is you have those strips that are close to uh, the electrical fields, that are close to the highways, right? Most of it has remained residential. My confusion is around the environmental hazards mm -hmm. and these like more fluent white people never want to be around that stuff, right? Or is it where they're living is not feeling the effects of that environmental hazards? They think about the environment differently. Gentrification happens closest to places where nobody wants to be. Mm -hmm. And where black folks can no longer afford to be. They can't keep the houses up, so they're empty. They, they're in disrepair. Those places tend to have, they, they're near industry, they're near highways, they are, they're near plants. Gentrifiers, now then let me add a, let me add a piece of Old Fourth Ward that, that needs to just be stated. Old Fourth Ward is where uh, Martin Luther King Jr. lived. Mm -hmm. That's where the historic house is, that's where the Coretta Scott King uh, buildings are. Auburn Avenue, which is just south of that, is where you had a very affluent black neighborhood business district that they came in and raised. That area didn't used to have a highway. <laughs> it didn't used to have, it always had train tracks though. So DeKalb Avenue goes right through a middle of that and then it's Emmett Park. Mm -hmm. Emmett Park has always been affluent. <laughs> Emmett Park, you have huge houses. When I was a young person, Emmett Park was, was large. So I don't think, now I'm going to say this in a two ways. I don't know if the question around environmental hazards are as obvious to folks in the metropolitan Atlanta area as it is in Friends, Houston or Chicago, okay. right? Where it's so visible right there, there goes the telephone pole and everybody sees it forever. Atlanta is so spread out that re the reality is you will be close to something somewhere because this was a transportation city. You have the, the, the largest train tracks going east and west and north and south going right through Atlanta. There is a, there are three, four highways 
We love our highways. We have 400 that goes into um, uh, somewhat affluent, but in even affluent white areas all the way in rural north. You have 75, 85, 75, 85, right in the middle is the, is the airport. Every down thing down there is logistics. Fairborn, everything down there is a warehouse, whether it's Amazon or it's Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. right? Because it's easy to distribute things right to the airport, right to the UPS truck, so on and so forth. But the reality is, the reason why um, the South lost the war, the Confederacy lost the war, was because Atlanta was cut off from supplies. They starved out hmm. the South. So you take Atlanta, you take everybody. So you had um, Northern forces coming down, which would normally come down through the, through the Atlantic. But there were also forces that were sent through what is basically the Appalachian to, if anyone knows this about mountainous areas, it is extremely hard to fight in mountains. It is, it is not that hard to walk through them, right? So they just walked right through the Appalachian and where did, what did they take over? It took over Atlanta. Atlanta was not the capital at that time. The environmental activists are right about the preservation of the land, mm -hmm. the preservation of the trees. Atlanta has a horrible um, UV index allergy rating. Almost people I know randomly just in the Uber talking about them moving to Atlanta. Yeah, I got allergies when I came here. You're right, because it's not just trees. They, they change every year. So you got dead trees and good trees and dead trees. This is all deciduous forests. And then you have transportation. You have all the train tracks. You have the MARTA, you have the, the, the highway, meaning all the nasty air just stays right there and it doesn't go anywhere. And then what they don't know is that you have these two platonic shifts that are happening, one from the Atlantic, one from the Gulf, and you have the Appalachian that's sitting right there. This place, when it comes to atmospheric pressure, is prone to inside the land. We see what we see, but in the side, in the, in the streets, this stuff is always moving. It's one of the reasons why we have so much cracks on the streets mm -hmm. and we can never get rid of them, right? That was Dr. Aliasa Ali Sul that you've been listening to. And this is Anna for Indigo Radio. We're gonna air part two of my conversation with Dr. Sul in a couple of weeks. And thank you to Dr. Sewell for all of their time. We're going to go out with the song, Somebody Prayed For Me, gospel singer from Atlanta, Dorothy Norwood. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll be back soon.